Welcome to Expanding the Continuum, a podcast exploring the clinical, ethical, and programmatic issues that emerge when providing HIV care to survivors of violence. We invite luminaries in the field to discuss the real implications of a health sector response to HIV and forms of intimate and patriarchal violence. This podcast is brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. I'm your host, Surabhi Kuke. Thanks for joining us. not just about like getting a pill in someone's mouth um, it's about you know ensuring that people are getting the harm reduction services that they need the rental assistance um, that they need the, the dental care that they need because realizing that we're only going to be able to end this epidemic and really support people to live their fullest lives by addressing as many aspects of their lives as possible So delighted to be sitting down with Dr. Oni Blackstock today, and I'd love for you, uh, Oni, to begin by introducing yourself. Tell our listeners who you are. Great. Thanks so much, Surabhi. It's great to be here. I'm Dr. Oni Blackstock. I'm a primary care and HIV doctor uh, in New York City. I'm also a researcher, so I focus a lot on HIV prevention and sexual health among all groups, um, but particularly um, cisgender women and increasingly trans women. Um, And then I also just recently um, stepped down as um, assistant commissioner at the Bureau of HIV um, at the New York City Department of Health, where I led the city's response to the HIV epidemic. Thank you. I know we really want to talk about inequities and the ways that power plays out in health outcomes. Let's just talk broad brush strokes. Can you talk to us about how you understand larger systems of power that structure our world, whether it's racial capitalism, patriarchy, how these things affect people's health, and particularly in thinking about people who are living with or uh, placed at risk for HIV? Yeah, so I think either really, it's like broad strokes, but I think maybe providing like a specific example might be helpful. So if we think about like racial capitalism, which is like inherently racialized, um, we think about the for-profit nature of healthcare in this country and the ways in which that makes it really difficult for people to access care. You know, we have an employer-based health insurance system, so folks have health insurance through their job, and if folks are able to qualify for Medicaid in their state, that's great. If folks are able to qualify for Medicare, that's great too. Um, But for instance, if we think about the South, many states in the South did not expand Medicaid as part of the Affordable Care Act, although we're seeing like little by little more and a few more are are, are, um, deciding to expand Medicaid. Um, And so if you're in a state where the eligibility criteria to get connected to Medicaid um, makes you ineligible for it um, and you don't have any way to access care, that is going to make it obviously much more challenging for you to go to see a doctor. And it's also going to deprioritize potentially health 
for you. So if you are concerned, for instance, about having to go to work and you can't miss your job, because if you miss your job, you might lose your job, then you're going to put off that doctor's appointment. If you are worried about like your food, where your next meal is going to come from, um, you may not be taking um, your medication. Um, so by having a system that instead of having healthcare for all, where everyone has access to care and doesn't have to worry about making these these different calculations about risk versus benefit, we have folks, for instance, who someone may not go for HIV testing because they can't make it to the clinic before the clinic closes because of childcare issues or work. And if they're not able to go for HIV testing, they're going to be less likely then to like learn about PrEP, for instance, as a way that that individual can protect themselves. They're going to know sort of less about what their options are in terms of that sexual health toolkit um, in terms of what's available um, to them. And the same thing for if you think about people living um, with HIV as well, because healthcare can be um, hard to access depending on what part of the country you're living in, you know, folks may not be able to get access to taking medications. And if they're not taking medications, then they're at risk for obviously not just for their own individual um, health that worsening, but also potentially passing HIV to other people. That's just an example of healthcare and healthcare coverage, but how that affects people's behaviors, ultimately sexual behaviors, drug use behaviors, health-seeking behaviors, and, and that all has a direct impact on health outcomes. And just to say, we see that particularly for women, um, and I'll say for cisgender women in particular, this issue around caregiving responsibilities, because we don't have you know, universal pre-K in other parts of the country and like day, daycare and all of this paid for, you know, often people have to compromise their health so they may not take their medication, they may not go for their visit because they have these other priorities, particularly around caregiving, that they need to be responsible for. So these are the ways in which like not having a, a safety net um, in this country has a direct impact on people, the choices they make, and obviously have a negative impact on health outcomes. And when we add to that interpersonal violence and other dynamics, it, it, it only exacerbates. That's an excellent example. Thank you so much. You know, I know you've been working at the New York City Department of Health. The lessons learned in, early on in the HIV epidemic are showing themselves to be relevant constantly. I'd love to hear your reflections on COVID-19 and HIV and what these connections are. Yeah, so there are many parallels between the COVID-19 pandemic and the HIV epidemic. I think perhaps the one that's most um, glaring um, is, um, well, two, when we look at the federal government's response to um, the COVID-19 pandemic and then comparing that with um, the early AIDS um, epidemic and just in terms of delayed, inadequate, um, insufficient um, responses by the federal government so that is quite similar. And then also the ways in which we see um, marginalized groups, marginalized populations being disproportionately impacted. And for both COVID-19 and HIV, you know, as both of these um, pandemics, epidemics have progressed, we've seen further sort of entrenchment and widening of existing racial ethnic inequities. So when we look at the HIV epidemic, you know, early on, um, I think the face of the HIV epidemic were, were, was white gay men, even though at the time we know black heterosexual women, black gay men, 
black trans women were being impacted. We really didn't see that. But as the epidemic has evolved, you know, at least here in New York City, about 90% of new HIV diagnoses in 2018 um, were among black and Latina trans women. Um, 90% of diagnoses among women were among black and Latina women and 80% of diagnoses among men were among black and Latino men. Um, And so we're just seeing sort of this evolution where you know, those communities that um, are the most disenfranchised and least able to take advantage of these amazing new tools that we have, we see those communities still being impacted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the root cause that you named, that racism and oppression are root causes of these health inequities. And we also see that in um in our in research around interpersonal and gender-based violence, that the root causes of inequality, racism, actually drive the epidemic of violence in our communities. Can you talk a little bit about how you see these connections in your work and how these overlaps actually fuel both epidemics, HIV and intimate partner violence? Yeah, so I think, um, so Dr. Celeste Watkins, who I believe was at Northwestern, I think she's transferring institutions. She um, has like an amazing book about um, women living with HIV and how women sort of have coped over the years with support networks and with assistance from government programs such as the Ryan White program. Um, But one thing that she, one phrase that she uses to characterize the HIV epidemic is it's an epidemic of inequality. And I think probably before the COVID pandemic, people probably were unfamiliar with a term like that. But I think, um, you know, I think really hits home and characterizes what we see in terms of um, HIV. Um, And really what underlies, you know, these inequities um, that we see and then just these drivers of HIV and COVID-19 are... Um, you know, racism, homophobia, uh, transphobia, sexism. Um, so on all of these are really uh, systems that are part of, you know, white supremacy culture, which is, as we know, a system of entitlement that advantages um, white people and disadvantages black people and other people of color. Um, and so because all of these strands are part of it, they you know, impact when we think about gender-based violence. Gender-based violence is often around cissexism, heterosexism. Um, and so we see cis women and trans women in particular being being impacted, but also um, gay men. We know that in, in, in many relationships um, of men who sex with men, we see um, just as high rates of, of intimate partner violence and possibly higher. Um, so I think of all these systems as also... Um, being the foundation for the social determinants of health. So when we think about housing, employment, um, health care, um, our neighborhood, the physical environment. Um, if we have a shaky foundation that's based in all of these isms, these systems of power, oppression, and trauma, and then we have social determinants that are built on this shaky foundation, um, those folks who are living at the margins um, are going to be the most most impacted. Um, and so, you know, when we think about intimate partner violence, um, for instance, as you were saying, we know that it's a risk for, for, for HIV acquisition as well as um, issues with engagement along the care cascade. Um, those folks who are most impacted by gender-based violence are also folks who are most impacted by all these other, you know, these, uh, you know, tied up in that um, are um, folks, you know, not, you know, living in poverty being underemployed or unemployed. Um, we have mass incarceration. A lot of these you know, are drivers and can exacerbate um, gender-based um, violence and intimate partner violence. Um, so those are some of the, 
um, the relationships um, that I see. And then also, we think about um, economic justice, you know, cis and trans women, for instance, um, you know, if people were allowed a universal um, basic income, if people were able to support themselves, um, would not be placed in situations where they're at risk for harm um, or for violence. So we can see the ways in which, like, ensuring that people have the proper social supports um, can decrease um, risk of intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, when we think more broadly from a public health perspective of primary prevention, really shifting the norms and systems, policies and practices that uphold, that, that currently uphold in, uh, and reproduce inequalities, primary prevention of violence, primary prevention of um, HIV, and possibly COVID as we are like really examining these um, relational dynamics, really shifting these cultural forms that uphold these structures can um, theoretically reduce the prevalence of these issues. And I think so much health justice work has emerged out of a sort of human and survivor-centered response to HIV. What does healthcare have to learn from the health justice work that has emerged out of HIV? And is there something similar that shows up in terms of COVID? You know, I think the response to the inequities has motivated and energized people to a large extent. And I'm curious what your observations have been about what we have to learn from this health justice work historically and currently. So yeah, I think HIV is a great um, case example. I think what is particularly unique about it um, are a few things. One is that um, activists and advocates very on in the epidemic um, engage with you know academia with researchers to really understand the science but also with like with government and policymakers um, and so so much of what we have seen including like the ending of the epidemic work here in New York City and New York State has been born out of um, community advocates and activists um, really like pushing government um, and researchers um, to get answers and to have um, the will that is needed to to invest. So, you know, with, with ending the epidemic, we have about $20 million here in New York City, I think every year that's dedicated to HIV programs, um, in addition to all the federal funding um, that we receive. So I think having that partnership is really important and really community has always led and has always been sort of explicit about what its its needs are. So I think that's something that can be learned. And then also um, for HIV, we see more of a um, holistic um, sort of response. Like we understand, so looking at the Ryan White program, for instance, which is a a federally um, funded program for people living with HIV who um, have low incomes, we see like, for instance, like that program, it's not just about like getting a pill in someone's mouth. Um, it's about, um, you know, ensuring that people are getting the harm reduction services that they need, the rental assistance um, that they need, the, the dental care that they need, because realizing that we're only going to be able to end this epidemic and really support people to live their fullest lives by addressing as many aspects of their lives as possible. Um, and I think we've seen, I think, the healthcare quote unquote system in the United States has been very siloed and Often healthcare practitioners think they're just dealing with an individual's health care, but so much of a person's health is determined by, you know, as we mentioned, housing, employment, the neighborhoods in which they live, the discrimination that they face, the support that they have. So I think the way that these different systems intersect as well, and the ways in which these various isms and phobias can be addressed through the work and through 
community work and just to say one more thing, mutual aid, I think, is like such an important part of, of HIV from early on in the pandemic. Um, and I think is an excellent example of something that obviously has now been leveraged for COVID-19, um, but something that people within the HIV community have had you know, years of expertise doing with really supporting one another. Yes, yes. Thank you for saying that. I want to back up a little because there were a lot of juicy bits in that particular response. But you talked about an opportunity to see how community can lead. And, you know, I think in all of our work, whether we're talking about violence prevention or HIV prevention, there is a pull to, of course, engage community. But what does it mean to have community lead in this work? I'd love to hear your experience or reflections on that. Yeah, I mean, I think about, just as a specific example, about 10 years ago in the Bronx, which is one of the boroughs that has the highest uh, prevalence of HIV, community organizations, community-based organizations, um, clinics, uh, hospitals came together and said, we need to have an effort around HIV testing that's borough-wide. We're not seeing the numbers of people come out and be HIV tested. How can we make this happen? And they came to the health department and demanded the health department develop with them um, an initiative that has ended up being the largest HIV testing jurisdictional initiative in the country, now expands throughout all of New York City. But by listening to what community was saying were the needs, um, we were able to then provide the resources to support community-based organizations, clinics, in expanding um, community testing beyond, you know, usually people were tested, you know, within a healthcare setting, but, you know, using mobile vans, like being out on street corners, being at subway stations to test um, New Yorkers. So I think that's like one, one explicit example of how we've seen community lead. You know, we also heard from, you know, in my role at the health department, you know, women of, of trans experience, in particular trans women of color, um, you know, who are at the front lines and uniquely positioned to help um, individuals from their community. Um, and so through the work with the health department, we're able to provide direct funding to trans women-led um, and also black MSM, men who have sex with men-led grassroots organizations to help them to build their, um, their foundations and their organizational capacities so that they could expand the services they could provide. And this also provided employment opportunities for people from these different affected communities. But we would not have known to do that without listening to community and having community say, this is, this is a need that we have. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, and it really speaks to the richness. Like there's no way to come to those solutions without the most affected in the middle of them. I thought that's wonderful. I wonder if you can share with listeners, whether they're healthcare providers, domestic violence advocates, ways that they can see or strategies they can use or tactics to actually turn this oppression, these oppressions on their on their head in a way to reduce vulnerability in their communities, like concrete steps that folks can take in their communities to challenge, dismantle, transform the systems that make people more vulnerable to HIV and intimate partner violence? There's a lot to unpack here, but I think that thinking about some of the organizations that listeners um, may be a part of, thinking about like what's also happening in those organizations when it comes to equity, because many times, you know, what happens in the community is often reflected with, you know, these organizations often are a microcosm. Um, And so, 
to be out doing work to dismantle various systems of oppression and then not to, in your own sort of backyard or your home, be doing this work, obviously, um, it's going to have much less impact. You know, a, a few different things, I think, just from an organizational perspective, and hopefully the audience who are listening are in a position in their organizations to influence leadership or they may be part of leadership. So one one approach that can be helpful is really using racial equity assessment tools in organizations when you're making really any decision, but really decisions that can have sort of like a cumulative impact over time. So racial equity assessment tools are tools that really ask questions about, you know, are we are we making this decision in an equitable way? Are the voices that need to be heard, not just at the table, but are they being taken seriously? And so there are a number of tools that are out there. There's a racial justice prime tool. There's also the GARE tool, the Government Alliance Racial Equity tool, which, but these allow us to like really slow down. Many times you're working organizations, it's like fast and you're trying to get the work done, but it's oftentimes when in those sort of environments or those times of intense urgency where we, where equity really falls to the wayside. Um, So it really allows individuals and organizations and leadership to like slow down and think explicitly about how do we incorporate equity into maybe this program that we're developing um, in terms of who's leading it in terms of like what impact it's going to have in the community. So that's like one thing that um, had some experience um, working with and which has been, I think, incredibly helpful. And then also I think within the organizations that people are from, I think having opportunities to sit with the ways in which even maybe particular audience members may be upholding these systems in their own lives or at work. Um, And what we found really helpful at the New York City Health Department is, you know, implementing affinity spaces where people from this sort of have similar shared backgrounds. So, you know, white staff or Asian staff or Latino staff, you know, each have their own groups where they really think about um, how they're being impacted or they are sort of executing racism um, and really sort of coming to terms with that. And I think particularly white affinity groups can be um, really helpful because they will allow white people, white staff to really center the discomfort that white people often feel with realizing their complicity with the institution of whiteness and with upholding whiteness and the ways in which that advantages them and disadvantages black people, indigenous people, other people of color. So those are those are two strategies um, which we have found um, really helpful in our organizations and even Affinity groups don't even need to happen within the organization. You can get a group of friends together to do this work. But really, much of the structural change that we need to happen cannot happen unless people are dealing with sort of what are really understanding and sort of embodying the discomfort that they have and working and processing and metabolizing all of that. Because if they don't, that discomfort will end up harming other people. Um, And that typically tends to be harming other BIPOC people. Yeah, I mean, these are habits, actually, right, that we fall back on if we're not careful. And I really appreciate you mentioning how important it is to slow down and resist the urgency to solve problems because, well, that is a habit of white supremacy culture. But in addition to that, it really doesn't allow to move at the pace of the transformation that's needed. I really hear that. And those examples are extremely useful and and. Helpful. Thank you. I um, 
I'd love to hear a little bit about your research and what you've been what you've been working on, um, and also maybe what you would like to see from the field, for especially research as it, it relates to the intersection between HIV and intimate partner violence. What are you hoping to see more of? So, so to answer your first question, um, some of the research I've been engaged in, um, well, just recently I had published um, a paper uh, about a pilot study of um, an intervention using peers who do um, outreach at a sex worker drop-in center um, at mobile syringe exchange sites and at a syringe ex- a brick and mortar syringe exchange center. Um, the peers basically engage cis and trans women um, around um, PrEP, so pre-exposure prophylaxis um, for HIV, the once a day um, pill that individuals can take to lower their risk of HIV, um, because we know that many um, women who um, use drugs or inject drugs um, or who are involved in transactional sex are at increased risk for um, HIV. And so um, I did a, a, a study with um, a syringe exchange program in East Harlem, and they have sites throughout the Bronx as well, to see whether this approach of using peers to talk to women and counsel women about PrEP um, would get them interested in PrEP, and um, and then the peers would then connect them to a clinic where they could get PrEP as well as other health care. And um, that was a really interesting study because um, we it was very challenging, obviously, when women are coming to the syringe exchange um, sites. You know, people are interested in getting their syringes and not necessarily hearing about PrEP. Um, so that's really where the peers come in to really, you know, work to engage women to figure out what their priorities are. And we can slip in some of that information about PrEP. Um, so we were able to talk to lots of women about PrEP, get them interested. But we weren't able to connect a lot of women to the clinic that offered PrEP. And what I learned um, is, you know, obviously women have many competing priorities. Many women are actively using. Many women had other appointments, mandated appointments that they had to go to. And so they couldn't go to this appointment. People had childcare issues. Um, And so what I made me realize is that we need to be able to bring services, obviously, to where women are. And obviously their models sort of similar to the mobile syringe exchange sites. Um, You know, we need to bring PrEP you know, the pill to those, to those sites where women are and not expect them to have to go to a whole nother site um, and sort of disrupt their routine um, to get care. Um, so that was like an exciting project. And I'm also working on another project um, called um, really building on the health department's virtual um, HIV home test giveaway. So we have a, we started a program during the pandemic since it was hard for folks to get into clinics. And because many of the community-based organizations that do outreach um, were closed and not going out into the community, um, we um, really sort of refined and modified an existing program we had that would allow community-based organizations and clinics to give codes to their clients or patients and then have the client or patient use that code to have a HIV self-test sent to them at home. And so I'm part of a project that is gonna be like looking specifically at that program around like focus on cisgender women and HIV testing um, and then also looking potentially at home-based testing for other sexually transmitted infections just given that folks are still sheltering in place to to some extent. So that's some of the work. So it's all about like figuring out how can we get like HIV prevention um, and treatment services to people, particularly women, where they are given that folks have so many other priorities that they're focused on. 
What I think would be really exciting to see in terms of like the intersection of IPV and HIV in the research space is like just using implementation science. So that's like looking at like, you know, obviously once an intervention or program is out there in real life, like what are the what are the things that affect like the adoption um, of that intervention and like the, the maintenance of it and the durability of it. So would love to see like, for instance, um, with the Q's intervention, like, you know, looking at organizations and what are the organizations that are, you know, better able to like integrate you know, in a systematic way, um, you know, integrate um, an intervention such as this, what are ways to increase adoption and uptake um, and obviously maintenance, maintaining the intervention um, and embedding it within the services. So that would be something just seeing sort of a, a rigorous systematic evaluation of, of such a, a program. Excellent. We hope that happens too. I'd love to hear who is inspiring you right now? What what are you reading, watching, listening to that's making you feel like hopeful, forward-looking, thinking as you're thinking about all these issues? So I have been, um, since a little bit before the pandemic, actually a few months before the pandemic, um, I, I use the Liberate app. I'm not sure people in the audience may know, um, but it's a meditation and mindfulness app for um Black, Indigenous, people of color. And um, there's someone who's on it, Lama Rod Owens. Um, I'm not sure if people in the audience have heard of him, but Lama Rod is um, a Tibetan spiritual leader. He's also a Black gay man from the South. Um, and he has like a wonderful way, I feel like, of linking the ways in which like meditation and mindfulness and sort of this idea of embodiment are really important to thinking about how do we begin to dismantle these systems of oppression and how do we like cope and support one another um, as we do this work. So he has a book called Love and Rage that just came out that includes different practices for meditation, mindfulness, activities, and also addresses, you know, how to have some of these really challenging conversations about racism and other and other isms. So I found him to be really inspiring. And then also, I follow on social media Sonia Renee Taylor, who's really awesome. She's on Instagram. I would recommend everyone following her. And I, what I've learned from her is that is the importance of, you know, everyone getting ready for November to vote. Is that voting, you know, it obviously is important, but it can't be our only tool, and that the organizing that um, many people are involved in. Um, and have been involved in over decades um, should must continue, but that also is incredibly important to be working on creating the communities that we're going to need to support and nurture us. You know, as time goes on, whether we have someone new in the White House or not, we're still going to need communities of care um, and to think about how do we construct those in a way that, that is meaningful and helpful. So I've been yeah inspired by by those folks who I think are looking at the big picture, the systems level, but also thinking sort of on the individual, on the interpersonal level, level, how we can care for ourselves and for our communities. Thank you. Um, so tell us what's next for you. What's what's the next picture? So I've sort of been on a treadmill past like. 10, 20, 25 years, probably since high school. Um, so I'm actually taking some time um, for myself um, and for my family to like decompress. But as I'm taking that time, um, I am sort of putting in the works um, 
developing a consulting firm that will focus on providing content expertise around um, HIV and sexual reproductive health, um, as well as providing um, support to organizations who are interested in um, racial equity within the organizations, particularly those that deliver um, health and healthcare services. It's just been uh, wonderful to hear your perspectives and uh, talk with you, Oni. I, I wonder how people can follow you if you'd like to share some of your uh, points of contact online. Um, it would be great for folks to know how they can track you. So I can be followed um, on Twitter at Dr. Oni B, so at D-R-O-N-I-B-E-E. And I typically post about topics at the intersection of health and equity and justice. Thanks so much for your time today, Oni. We look forward to having you back for more discussions. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and nnedv.org. I'm Surabi Kuke. See you next time.